Last weekend, my four sons and I, so Brandon and Sean, and then my sons-in-law, Dylan and John Matthew, son-in-law-to-be in two weeks, spent 48 hours together with Dick Towner. He's my adoptive dad, for those of you who don't know. And we went to a cabin in southern Indiana, and we spent the whole time together focusing on Dick. We asked him to tell us his story and to share with us his life wisdom. We asked a bunch of questions uh, about his life, and then the time ended by our all piling into the car and going to Cincinnati, uh, which is where he grew up and then also lived much of his professional life. And he drove us around and showed us different places that were important to him. And I will never forget some of those descriptions that he shared with us as we were uh, there together. It was an incredibly wonderful time and something I would really commend to you as you uh, think about um, those who, who may be moving into their later years and what it might look like to honor them. Well, Dick loves to fish. Dick loves to fish. We really didn't hear Dick Towner's story. We just hear, heard one big, long fishing story. <laughs> we had a chance to drive by the pond where Dick first tried fishing. He told us about the, the Christmas as a kid when he received a fly rod and, and he went to that tiny pond and he, he taught himself how to cast. He uh, drove us past the apartment where he would sneak in in the middle of the night and go fishing in the pond of the apartment until he got caught. And then, evidently having learned from his previous lesson, he drove us uh, through the cemetery where there was a pond where he received permission to fish after hours. Uh, and, and he also recounted tale after tale of his 40 plus trips to, the, to Quatico and the Boundary Waters up in Canada uh, over the length of his life. And, and uh, some of the near record fish, the smallmouth small bass and, and pike that he caught up there. Well, imagine that you are a fishing rod in Dick Towner's hands. I mean, we all know what a fishing rod is for. The whole purpose of a fishing rod is to catch fish. So given your purpose, given the reason that you exist, Think about how easy it would be for you as a fishing rod to focus on the business end of the rod, to focus on the line and the knot and the lure and the cast and the, the presentation. But if you were a fishing rod held in the hands of an expert fisherman like Dick Towner, wouldn't it make more sense for you to focus on the other end? To focus on the grip and the hand in which you were held, and, and to let him do the rest, to let him place you where he wanted you, and to let him be concerned with bringing in the fish? Well, that's really the basic idea in a different metaphor that we encounter when we come to John chapter 15, the first 17 verses. It's one of the most familiar parts of the whole last message that Jesus gave to his disciples before the night before he laid down his life on the cross. So if someone were to ask you, what is the main theme of John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, how would you answer that? Well, actually, let me, let's just do this. Let's just experiment with this. I'm just going to read through the passage, and as I do that, I'd just like to, you to listen for what you think the main theme of this passage is. What is it about? What's the main point that it seems to be making? 
John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, you can read it on the screen up here or, or open it up on your device, or if you have your Bible with you, follow along. John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will become even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that There we go. Sorry. <laughs> now, sorry, Parks, wherever you are, I'm not going to go back and repeat all of that. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life to, for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So what is that passage about? Some of you would say the passage is primarily about remaining or abiding in Jesus. And with good reason. Look how often that theme comes up. Eight times in 17 verses, that is certainly a main focus of this passage. But others of you notice that there's another major theme that runs through this passage and is repeated often. It's actually repeated as often as the theme of remaining. You could easily argue that this is the most important theme, the theme of bearing fruit. But some of you caught that there's a third theme that, though it's not repeated quite as often as the first two, certainly has a place of prominence in this passage and could be understood to be the whole point of it. And that's the theme of Jesus' command to live a life of love. 
So the call to bear fruit, the command to love, and the invitation to abide. Each of them is central in some ways to this passage. So here's how I think these themes fit together. I believe that the main focus of this passage is Jesus' expectation that his disciples will bear fruit. The kind of fruit that we are meant to bear is a life of love that Jesus commands us to live. And the way that we are able to bear that fruit is by staying connected to Jesus, remaining in him, abiding in him. So let's just walk back through those. Jesus is just about to leave and to send the church out into the world as his agents, his representatives. We can think of this final message to the disciples as his charter to the fledgling church. And at this point in the unfolding of his message, Jesus is talking about the sort of life that he expects expects his disciples to live in his absence as they carry on, in a sense, without him. Specifically, Jesus tells his followers that he expects them to live lives that bear fruit. Bearing fruit is actually one of the most common metaphors you find in the scripture. It's used more than two dozen times. Think about what that metaphor implies. In an agricultural society like ancient Israel, fruit-bearing plants and trees are not planted to look pretty. Flowers are not the point. They are planted to provide food. So when you hear the word fruit, don't think clementines or honeycrisp, some sort of succulent addition to the side of an otherwise hearty meal. In biblical language, fruit means whatever part of a plant or tree is edible, provides sustenance. Grain or kernels on a stalk, olives or dates or figs on a tree, grapes or squash or gourds on a vine. When you hear fruit, think food. We human beings are in constant need of sustenance that will keep us alive and allow us to thrive as human beings. And fruit is food that sustains life. We are called to bear food that sustains life. A healthy, vibrant plant will bear lots of fruit. And an unhealthy plant, a plant that doesn't fulfill its purpose, is one that doesn't bear much fruit or much good fruit or any fruit at all. That's the idea that's behind the very first parable that Jesus shares with his disciples in the unfolding of of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 13, where he talks about four different kinds of soils. Contrary to the way a lot of people read this, this is not a story about four different kinds of followers of Christ. It is about one kind of follower of Christ. And that is the kind Jesus expects us to be. One plant, the last one in the story, produces a crop that yields 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. That's the metaphor for our disciple who fulfills his or her purpose by hearing the the word, understanding it, and being fruitful. The other three examples of plants that are plants that don't fulfill their purpose. They never grow, or they grow for a while, but then they die off, or they continue to grow, but they never bear any fruit. Flowers, maybe. They might look nice, but fruit, no. So those are three different examples of people who don't fulfill their kingdom purpose. And I think it's fair to ask if Jesus would even recognize any of those three as true disciples. 
So just think about this metaphor in the kind of simplest and most obvious of terms. Jesus calls us to be people who bear fruit. So by using that metaphor, Jesus is saying, if you belong to me, you will have something on which the lives of others will depend. A healthy and spiritually mature version of you, you fulfilling your kingdom purpose, will mean you live in such a way that through your life, you bring life to others. How does your life translate into life for the people that God has placed around you? So listen again to two key passages in John chapter 15 that talk about how important fruit-bearing is in the Christian life. First, verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus says, when we bear fruit, we bring God glory. We reveal God for who he is in this world. And when we bear fruit, we reveal ourselves for who we are as his people as ones who belong to him. Our statement of identity and purpose as a church family captures this when it says we are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory. Is that the most foundational way that you think about yourself as being his, existing for him, for his sake, for his glory, for his kingdom purposes? It turns out fruit-bearing is central to our calling as followers of Christ. Here's the other key passage, verse 16. It says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. The full reason why God chose us to belong to him is swallowed up in the mysteries of God's grace. But at least part of that reason, Jesus actually spells out for us in this passage. Jesus chose us and he called us to himself so that we would go out into this world as his representatives representing him and that we would bear fruit. Paul echoes this expectation in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. My brothers and sisters, we died through the body of Christ that we might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is so challenging, isn't it? Think about this clear call that's put in front of us as the people of God, as the church, to be fruit-bearing people. It's what we're chosen and appointed for. As fathers of Christ, we don't often think about the why connected to our becoming Christians. We tend to focus on the benefits that come to us. This is awesome that I've been reconciled to God. This is awesome that I've experienced his forgiveness, that I've found such joy and peace that he walks through, with, through life with me and I've experienced new life in him. Absolutely, and not to diminish any of that, but when Jesus calls a person into the kingdom, he chooses and appoints that person to a fruitful life, a life of kingdom purpose, a life lived for the sake of others. So just to pause for a moment, if we are honest with ourselves, how much of your life is lived for the sake of others? How much of your life is lived for you? 
To what extent do you see the way you live your life as your answer to Jesus' choosing and appointing you to be his kingdom representative and to bear fruit for the kingdom? As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be given to a people who will produce its fruit. I mean, this is a really, really rich and engaging metaphor, but in practical terms, what are we actually talking about? I mean, what does this really mean? This sounds so theoretical, but what exactly is the fruit of the kingdom that we are called to bear? Well, that brings us to two sayings of Jesus that are not in this passage, but listen to how they tie together to each other and and interpret and explain each other. The first one, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus gives us a basic principle. And the principle is this, by their fruit, you will know them. If you want to know what kind of a tree they're connected to, just look at the kind of fruit that they bear. A look at the fruit is all you need to identify the tree. And then in John chapter 13, verse 35, just a little bit earlier in this last message of Jesus to his disciples, he says this, now by this, everyone will know that you are part of my tree that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is saying, your fruit will identify you. It will identify what tree you're part of. And if I am the tree you're joined to, because I came on a mission of love and I have laid down my life in love, love is the fruit that you are expected to produce. Love is the fruit by which the world will recognize you as my disciples. The fruit of the kingdom is love. Which brings us to the second central theme that we discovered in this passage. The kind of fruit that we are meant to bear. Those who study such things tell us that in the Gospels there are 49 different times when Jesus gives a command to one or several or all of his followers. But as you look through those and you look at the context you realize that they really boil down to just a handful of closely related things. These are the commands that Jesus puts in front of us. Deny yourself, love God, follow Jesus, and let your light shine by loving, serving, and forgiving others. It's not an overstatement to say that all of that can be summed up in one command, to love. Love God, love one another, love your neighbor which, as it happens, lines up perfectly with our calling as a church family. Know Jesus, grow with his people, and go to the world, or as I've been saying it more and more in the past two years, live a life of love. Love Jesus, love his people, and pour out his love on the world. If you are part of the church, the covenant family, this is what we are about. This is God's call on us as his people to live a life of love. Love is the fruit of the kingdom. We are called, we are chosen and appointed, we are commanded to love. So let me just stop there and ask another hard question. When people inspect the branches of your life, when people in this community around us inspect the branches of this church's life, what will they find growing there? How will they find the thing that gives them life? Which brings us to the third theme of this passage. 
Jesus talked about the expectation that we will bear fruit as his followers. He talked about the kind of fruit that we are meant to bear, which is a life of love. And now Jesus talks about the way that we are able to bear that fruit, which is by staying connected to him, remaining in him, abiding in him. Now, at this point, I think it would be easy to feel completely overwhelmed by this call of Jesus on the lives of us as his followers. But now Jesus does something utterly unexpected. At the very moment that he calls us to live a life of bearing fruit, a life of sacrificial love, he takes our focus off of the fruit-bearing end of the branch altogether, and he calls us to focus on the place where we draw our own life-giving sustenance, which is from him. He shifts the focus from the hook to the grip. In Jesus' mind, the two themes of bearing fruit and remaining in him are inextricably connected. He couldn't be clear about the direct connection that he sees between them. Listen again to verses 4 and 5. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does it mean to remain or abide in Jesus? It means staying connected to Jesus in a life-giving way. Abiding is staying connected to Jesus in a life-giving way. Jesus says we cannot live a fruit-bearing life unless we do that. And if we do that, we will live a fruit-bearing life. The word is in the present tense, so it means to keep doing it. Continuous dependence, constant reliance. I know that a number of you have found Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest, to be an important part of your devotional life. In one of his entries, he writes this, and I love this. He says, keep all your life perennially open to Jesus Christ. Don't pretend with him. Are you drawing your life from any other source than Jesus Christ? The golden rule for your life and mine is this concentrated keeping of the life open toward God. Never be turned out or never be hurried out of a relationship of abiding in him. Abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, is staying connected to Jesus in a life-giving way. Putting ourselves in a place where his life flows into us, not only so that we can receive the life that we need, but also so that his life can flow through us and into the lives of the people that God places around us. We have access to Jesus all the time, and we are called to live our lives so oriented to him, so joined to him, so anchored and attuned to him that his life pours into us and his fruit is produced through us. Just like the imagery of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8. So practically speaking, what does this actually look like? How do we abide? How do we rest in him? How do we make our home in him? How do we find our life in him? What is that going to look like day to day? Well, for 20 centuries, the church has encouraged its members to foster and to adopt an abiding life. 
Over the years, it's developed a whole series of what are known as spiritual disciplines, things like daily devotional time and weekly gatherings of the church family for worship and things like breath prayer and resting prayer and and solitude and silence, practices that, that Sharon likes to call abiding life practices, and I think that's the perfect name for them. These are ways that we we practice abiding in Christ. So here are just two of dozens of examples I could have drawn from across the ages. And I think these are really practically instructive for us of what it will look like for us throughout the day to abide in Christ. In the 1600s, a French housewife named Jean Guyon wrote a little book on abiding that's become a spiritual classic. It's called A Short and Very Easy Method of Prayer. Isn't that an appealing title? So in it, she, she introduces an, approaching, uh, an approach to prayer that she calls beholding the Lord, which she encourages to be part of every one of our days. And here's some of how she describes it. And you might just, as, as we move towards the close of the service, uh, as I'm just about to conclude, these two passages I read will really lead us into another uh, season of abiding as we conclude our service this morning. So you might even, rather than just hearing these in your head, let these things begin to usher you afresh this morning into the presence of the Lord. This is what uh, Jean Guyon writes. Turn your heart to the presence of God. By faith, believe that you have come into his presence. If your mind begins to wander, just turn it back again. Hold your mind quiet before him. As you come to him, humbly acknowledge that he is everything. Confess to him that you are nothing. Close your eyes to everything around you. Begin to open the inward eyes of your soul. Believe that God dwells in you. Once you're in his presence, be still and quiet before him. Give yourself up to God. Acknowledge before him his right to rule over you. Surrender your heart into his hands. Surrender your freedom into his hands. Yield to the Lord his right to do with you as he pleases. Abandonment is the key to the inner court. The key to the fathomless depths. Abandonment is the key to the inward spiritual life. Casting off all your cares, dropping all your needs, giving up all your concerns. All your concerns go into the hands of God. Devoting the present fully and completely to your Lord, surrender yourself to be led by God. Abiding is staying connected to Jesus in a life-giving way. It doesn't mean constant and unbroken awareness of God, much as we would like to experience that. None of us can sustain that. Every one of us as finite human beings have minds that will wander away from God again and again throughout the day. And the harder the circumstances that we face, the more our minds will run back to our concerns and away from God. As Guyon says, if your mind begins to wander, just turn it back again, even if we need to do that 50 times a day. In his spiritual classic, Introduction to the Devout Life, also written in the 1600s, Francis de Sales recommends a practice of returning again and again to God throughout the day that he calls spiritual retreats. It's a way of leaning back into God's arms often throughout the day. This is what he writes. During the course of the day, recall as often as possible that you are in God's presence. Let your heart retreat at various times to some place near the Lord to refresh and restore itself. 
Remember to retire at various times into the solitude of your own heart, even while outwardly engaged in discussions and transactions with others. Such was David's practice as he testified countless times in the Psalms. Oh Lord, I am always with you and I've set the Lord always before me and I lift up my eyes to you, O Lord. Therefore, withdraw your spirit from time to time into your heart and there, apart from the world of men, you can converse heart to heart with God. As I've thought about my own efforts to stay connected to Jesus in a life-giving way throughout the day, I realize that there are four different dimensions of what this has come to mean for me. Abiding involves being attentive to the presence of Jesus at any and every moment instead of just what is right in front of us. It means resting in Jesus instead of succumbing to the stress and the pressure of whatever is coming down on top of us. It means trusting in Jesus, trusting Jesus with whatever challenges we may face instead of relying on our own commotion and our own effort. And it means surrendering to Jesus, opening my life all over again to whatever he wants to do in me and through me instead of trying to take control trying to make things go the way I think they should. So all four of these come together in a posture of abiding. So abiding is resting, trusting, surrendered attentiveness to Jesus. It is trusting, surrendered, attentive, resting in Jesus. It's surrendered, attentive, resting, trust in Jesus. And it's attentive, resting, trusting, surrender to Jesus. Again and again, as often as God reminds me, as often as I forget and find myself caught up in the press and stress of life, and God graciously awakens me and turns my heart back to him, I come back to Jesus, staying connected to Jesus in a life-giving way from my first waking breath through the day to its very end. Do you want to live a fruitful life as a follower of Christ? The life for which He has chosen and appointed you, one that overflows with the life-giving love of God into the lives of the people that God has placed around you. Jesus says, here's the way to do this. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine And you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus invites us, and he invites us again this morning to abide in his love, in his presence. So let's respond to that invitation now. I just want to invite you to come to him. You might close your eyes, quiet your heart, Come to him in a posture of attentive, resting, trusting, surrender now. I invite you to turn your heart to the presence of the Lord. Quiet your heart before him. Give yourself up to God. Surrender your heart into his hands. Bring him the affection of your heart and pour out your devotion at his feet. 
We love you, Jesus, our King. We love you and adore you, and we lay our lives before you.